dab. There it is. There it is. Double dab right there. Coming again. Yeah, that was a song by a band called Sleeping at Last, and it's a poetic sort of retelling of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, Once again, welcome. You're here on week three of a four-week series that we're doing called Won't You Be My Neighbor. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have seen the Mr. Rogers documentary that they did? Yeah. Um, Amazing documentary and tribute to an amazing man who really lived out the way of love and did so in a compelling, breathtaking way. And I went with Kelly and we uh, saw that movie and thought, man, I need to do a series on this because I really, my heart's plea to Jesus is that our church would look a little bit more like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And so the first week we talked about the fact that God isn't calling us to identify our neighbor or define our neighbor, that that's sort of a low-level question. In fact, he's asking us to become neighborly to whomever we might meet. Last week we said that's not easy. As long as there's been hospitality, there's been complaining about offering it. That in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse, verses 8 and 9, Peter writes to the church and he says, offer hospitality, anybody remember? Without grumbling, right? Because we typically grumble when we offer hospitality. They're coming over again. How long are they going to stay? Are they going to jack up our house? Are they going to eat all our food? My goodness, right? So we said, listen, we've got to build margin into our life if we're going to actually live out this way of Jesus, of not just offering hospitality, but doing so without grumbling. Um, I don't know about you, but as I've been wrestling with this topic more and more, and Jesus has been calling me to open my heart, my life, my home more and more, I've been seeing more opportunities to do that. Anybody with me? Both of you. Great. (laughs) The beginning of September, I was asked to be on a world religions panel at Kelly's High School, Mountain Vista. And so I was there along with um, um, a Buddhist, a Hindu, and a Muslim imam. And so I guess it's sort of the beginning of a joke, right? A Christian, a Buddhist, an imam walk into a school. They walk into a school. And we were sitting there and they asked us all a number of different questions. And at one point, the Muslim was explaining things that we get wrong about Islam. And he said to the class, he asked the class a question. He said, how many of you guys have a Muslim friend? And there's a number of people, their hands rose in the, I, I was assuming that there's sort of the token Muslim at, at um, Mountain Vista High School, I'm not sure, but I think they all know the same guy, right, or gal. Their hands went up. And I thought to myself, I can't raise my hand to that. I don't have a Muslim friend. And I thought in that moment, I thought, but I want one. And so after the panel, We'd all left, and I'm driving back to work, and I'm like, I really want, I would love a Muslim friend. And so I emailed him, and I said, hi, this is Ryan from the panel, Um, great job, really fun to meet you. I said, I don't have any Muslim friends, and I would like one. (laughs) And I felt like I was in middle school again, will you be my friend, here's a box check yes, or a box check no, right? And so I'm like sitting by my computer like, what's he going to say? Is he going to think I'm weird? I'm sure he did. But he wrote back and he said, I'd love to be friends. And so we started up this conversation via email. And last Monday we went out and we had lunch together and we got to talk about our faith. We got to talk about our families. And we got to talk about our upbringing. And we got to talk about Jesus. And it was as though the table sort of turned into this altar where something unique and Something special started to happen. But that isn't all that unique or all that special because that happens around tables all the time, doesn't it? 
I mean, every time we gather with friends or family or strangers around a table and share food, something unique, something, we could even say something sacred happens, which is a good thing because we spend a lot of our lives eating. Have you recognized this? We will spend 67 minutes on average today eating or drinking. Over the course of our life, we will spend somewhere around 32,000 hours eating. So it's a good thing, good thing that something sacred and meaningful happens around the table. But it's also, we live in this tension, don't we? Because we live in a time and place where chefs have become celebrities, some of them, right? They have written best-selling books They've become inspirational speakers. And at the same time, we as a country spend over $50 billion every year on dieting. And at any moment, you could do a survey of our nation and 25% and 47% of women will be dieting at any one time. So we have this sort of love-hate relationship with food, don't we? At least 30 million people of all ages and genders suffer from some sort of an eating disorder. That's just under 10% of our country. So food is a sort of tough thing to wrestle down in our relationship to it. And if you look at the story of God, there's food all throughout. In the very beginning, food is where things start to go wrong. Where Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Right? In the middle of the story, you have the picture of things going right or being put back to right is a table. This is my body given, breaking of bread. My blood shed, drinking of wine. And in the very end, you see that the picture of God's culmination, restoration of history is the marriage supper of the land. Of the land. Things go wrong through food. The picture of things being made right is food. And the end of God's restoration is a feast all throughout. So it shouldn't surprise us that, yeah, something sacred happens around really ordinary tables. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And as you do there, we're going to play a little game, okay? So there's a phrase three times in the scriptures, the son of man came. Okay, don't, don't say it out loud, but just think of how many of those blanks you could fill in. The son of man came. Here's the first time the New Testament uses this phrase. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a Mark talking about Jesus's mission. This is why he came to serve us, and to give his life for us. The second time it's mentioned is in Luke chapter 19. The Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. This is another retelling of his mission. Jesus comes on a rescue mission. So both of these have to do with the reason that Jesus came. The third time this phrase is mentioned doesn't have to do with the reason he came. It has to do with the way that he came. So listen to Luke chapter 7, we're reading verse 34. It says, and the Son of Man came, say it with me church, eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
So the fact that Jesus could be called a glutton, a drunkard, means that he didn't just come sort of dabbling in a meal. He didn't come, well, every once in a while I'll grab a meal. Jesus was known for feasting. Jesus was known for the way that he gathered around tables, for the way that he ate of all the ways to come. Right? He could have come with fanfare. He could have come with angels backing him. He could have come with a legion of angels at his side ready to just wreck shop. Whatever he wanted, he's a son of God. And how does he come? Gathering around tables, eating, and drinking. We, we might say that he was seriously into eating and drinking. His methodology for the way that he would change the world for the way that he would bring about the ransom for many and the seeking and the saving of the lost. The way that Jesus did that was a long meal stretching into the evening, oftentimes with people good Jewish folks would never have associated with. That's where he did his work. Because here's what Jesus knew. Here's what Jesus knew, that the meal, the table, is not simply about consumption. It's not just about what you take. It also has this very mystical but real power, a sacred power of creation. And think about it. We're all a little bit changed after a meal, aren't we? You may go, yeah, some meals have added a few pounds, right? Or maybe just one or two, but you add a few together. And yeah, or the conversation changes us just a little bit. So it shouldn't surprise us that when we pick up the scriptures, we see Jesus eating all the time. Now, some have proposed that in Luke's gospel, Jesus eats his way from one story to the next. Let me show it to you, just so you see it. In Luke chapter 5, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. In Luke's chap Luke chapter 7, Jesus is anointed at a meal of Simon the Pharisee. We'll look, about, look at that in just a moment. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. We'll talk about that next week. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus eats at Mary and Martha's house. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a dinner. At Luke chapter 14, Jesus is at a meal and urges people to invite the poor rather than just their friends and family. Luke chapter 19, Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. That, that's an awesome passage. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Hope you got something good. In Luke 22, we have the Lord's Supper. His body broken, his blood shed, symbolized through bread and wine. Luke 24, Jesus, the risen Christ, has dinner with two disciples in Emmaus, and he eats fish with them in Jerusalem. But this shouldn't surprise us. We all know something sacred happens when you gather around a table and look people in the eye and share a meal together. In fact, we're just being able to identify this through research. What they're showing is that families that eat together have an astounding, elevated level of joy and happiness and goodness in their life. Here's what they say. The eating meals as a family together helps kids maintain a healthy body weight, helps them have better quality diets, better eating habits. They'll be, as they grow up, less likely to use alcohol or drugs. Teenage girls are less likely to binge, purge, diet, and otherwise engage in disordered eating behaviors, all because of families gathering around the table together. A recent study even suggested that children who have family meals during which they can talk more as a family 
have less depressive symptoms. So some people have suggested that like, you don't need to be a rock star parent. You just need to eat with your kids. Like that was the summary of their findings. Have a few meals every week together as a family. But that can be easier said than done, can't it? In fact, in the last three decades, in the last 30 years, we've seen a 33% decline in families who eat meals together. And over half of the families that still do eat together do so with the television on. So we have these, like, this tension, don't we? We're finding out meals have this sacred, beautiful, mystical power, and yet we're avoiding them maybe more than we ever have before. And I get it. It's difficult. I mean, to have your whole family in the same place at one point in time is crazy. I get it. I hear you. But it seems as though it was important to Jesus. And it seems as though the statistics, the research is showing it should be important to us as well. Of all the things, let me think about this for a second. Of all the things Jesus could have spent his time doing, he spent it eating, he spent it drinking. He spent it around a table. Why? Why? If you have your Bible, Luke chapter 7, that's where we're going to be exploring today. And what I want to do is I'm going to read you this story. I'm not going to put all the verses up on the screen, but I want to ask this question. What is it that the table not just, con- not just consumes, but what the table creates? Because the platform for the radical gospel is the ordinary table. Look at the way it happens in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. That's typically how they would eat back in Jesus' day. They might have a little table that was low and they would sit on the ground and they would typically have their knees forward and their feet sort of tucked behind them. Verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, typically, if a famous rabbi would be at a house in your neighborhood, in your area, in your town, word would spread quickly. And wealthy people, which Pharisees typically were, would have had a little courtyard sort of in in their home, but they could, guests could sort of look in and see what was going on inside. But this woman isn't content to stay there. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. Every commentator that writes about this story says that what this woman did back in that day, in that time, typically was only done in bedrooms. The taking of the hair down, The anointing of feet, the kissing of feet, the wiping of feet, only done in very intimate settings. It would be akin to a pastor sitting at a table and a stripper coming in and starting to do a little bit of a tease. Just saying, like we we don't, we need to enter in. Everybody at this table is going, Jesus, what are you doing? Get out of there. And when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who's touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. 
And Jesus answered him. Now, you just love this turn of phrase. He thought this, and Jesus answered him. That's when you know you're in trouble. That's when you're like, hey, hey, it's been nice. It's been good. You're right. Whatever you're going to say, you're right. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, rabbi or teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has been shown. But whoever has been given little loves little. One of the fascinating things as you read through the Gospels that you'll start to recognize is that quote-unquote sinful people were immensely attracted to Jesus. They just wanted to be around him. They put themselves in extremely uncomfortable social situations just to get near him. I think one of the questions I always ask is, why does it seem like the opposite happens now? Where The church seems to attract religious people, but irreligious people hold a stiff arm to us. Have we? So here's just this is for free. I'm not going to answer this question. Have we gotten part of the message wrong? What is it about Jesus that drew people in? And what is it about the church that pushes people away? We might have gotten just a little bit of it wrong. Here's what the Pharisee says, verse 39. If you knew Jesus, If you only knew, you must be ignorant, because if you knew who this woman was, you would have told her to go away. See, a central question in Jesus' day was, with whom can I eat? Because eating was a theological statement. In, In some ways, it still is today. Back then, it was called table fellowship, but we might simply just call it friendship. And one of the things that happens around a table, one of the sacred things that happens around a table is that the table extends friendship. You share a meal with somebody and it's like there's an embodied type of love that's extended. Food connects. It connects family, it connects friends, it connects strangers. There's something that happens. So when Jesus in verse 34 is accused of being the friend, quote, of tax collectors and sinners, you could almost imagine him going, guilty, I am. And Luke goes, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you just how friendly he is to people others would want to put a stiff arm to. See, being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person, it's symbolic of friendship, of intimacy, and of unity. I love the way that Robert Karras puts it. He says this, in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way that he ate. Because of the way that he ate. And I think that same power, the power of the table that we see in the life of Jesus exists today too. Let me give you just two ways. Two things that happen when you gather around a table. Number one, 
is that the table has the ability to transform issues into people. Issues into people. It's easy to have an idea about somebody, about their quote-unquote, or, or about maybe their race or their sexual persuasion or whatever. But when you get across the table with somebody and you start to look them in the eye and you start to see that they eat the same way that you do and that, that they have the same types of things going on in their soul that you do, there's something that's transformed in us. And so that's why Jesus asked the Pharisees at this dinner, do you see this woman? Do you see her? Not do you see the issue. Not do you see the fact that she's probably the town prostitute, that her life is an absolute mess, that she's quote-unquote dirty. Not, not, not all that. Not do you see her issues. Do you see her? Because if you see her, things start to change. You start to see faces and stories instead of issues and policies. I read a story on NPR recently about a man by the name of Daryl Davis. Uh, Daryl's a, a blues artist, but for the last 30 years, he's had this sort of side hobby. For the last 30 years, he's been meeting with Ku Klux Klan members. Listen to what he said in this interview. He says, once the friendship blossoms, and the Klansmen realize that their hate might be misguided, since Davis started talking with these members, he said, over 200 Klansmen have given up their robes. What happens when that takes place is that David collects, Davis collects the robes and keeps them in his home as a reminder of the dent he's made in racism. And here's what he says, quote, by simply sitting down and having dinner with people. So maybe before we decide how we feel about an issue, we should ask, do we know anybody in that camp? It might change the way that we see things. We start to see that where people are coming from, the experiences have shaped them, and that maybe, just maybe, we're not all that different. But here's the other thing that Jesus does. As he sits down around tables, it's not just an extension of friendship. It's an extension of social justice. It's him saying, I'm unwilling to let this world go divided as it is. It's why in Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to the host of a dinner he's been invited to, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite just your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And then you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Look up at me for just a moment. Jesus is breaking down walls as he gathers around tables. That's what he's doing. He's embodying the justice that God longs to extend to his world. I love the way that Ed Loring, one of the founders of the Open Door community in Atlanta, said it. He said, justice is important, but supper is essential. And it's no coincidence, you guys. Read through, as you read through the book of Acts, you get to Acts chapter 10 and 11, and before the gospel can be taken to the Gentile world, the Jewish people must change the way they eat. They have to. Because so much that's sacred happens around a table. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36, the story starts out like this. Notice if you see a theme. When one of the 
Say it with me. Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Luke wants us to get that the person hosting this party is a whom? Pharisee. Yeah, and Pharisees back in Jesus's day were a reaction to a sellout by the Jewish people. See, roughly 200 years before Jesus is on the scene, the Hellenization of the Jewish people has started to begin. And there were a number of Jewish leaders who sort of sold out. And instead of holding true to Yahweh as the one true God, they started to make sacrifices to the pantheon of Greek gods. They adopted the Greek customs. And so in reaction, the pendulum swings the other way, and you have the Pharisees. They called people out. They called people to evaluate their holiness, and their holiness was always measured by how far we can keep ourselves from those people who aren't quite right. Our holiness is directly tied to our distance from the dirtiness. That's what they believed. And they believed that only when, only when, they were perfectly pure, then their Messiah would come. And the Pharisees believed that the table in their homes was sort of a surrogate altar to the Lord's altar in the temple. Therefore, whoever they ate with had to be perfectly clean. Enter the woman in this story. So they're not just, she's not just pushing back against the social customs of the day. She's potentially driving a wedge between them and God. She's making it so that God won't come back and be the Messiah and rescue the nation of Israel. She's making it so they, they can't, quote unquote, have a relationship with God, at least the way that they thought they would, because holiness and relationship is defined by distance from sin. And when Jesus sits down at the table, he's not only breaking down walls, he's destroying misconceptions about who God is and about what God is like and about what God asks of his people. And so at the end of the story, we see Jesus say to her, your sins are forgiven. It's the same thing he sends, says to people at the end of Luke chapter 5. I've not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. He's going, I am up to something, and it's not about how clean you can get. It's about how holy I am, and in coming close to you in my holiness, I don't get dirty, I make you clean. It's about Jesus embodying grace. And it all happens around a table. And what we see around tables all throughout the scriptures is that Jesus makes this point. God's holiness works from the inside out, not the outside in. It's not how holy we can be. In fact, in Mark chapter 7, there's this story about Jesus and his disciples sitting down to eat a meal. And the Jewish people had all sorts of customs. They would wash their hands and they would get all ready to eat, make sure that the food was all clean. And Jesus' disciples just go and they sit down at the meal. They don't play the game. They don't wash their hands. It reminds me of my dinner table <laughs> almost every night. Like we pray together as a family and I have my two boys on each side of me and nine times out of ten, I hold their hands and I think to myself, you haven't washed your hands in days. It's been... <laughs> years maybe, right? And so we say amen, and I'm like, go wash your hands. I know you haven't, because they're just grimy, filthy, 
right? And Jesus is like, double down, yes, yes and amen. My disciples have dirty hands and they're making a point. The point is that you cannot achieve cleanliness in relationship to God. You have got to receive it from him. You don't work your way to him. You open yourself to receive grace from him. That's what Jesus does at the table. It's an embodiment of grace. When he says, woman, your sins are forgiven, it's not because of anything she did. It's not because she was amazing. It's simply that she knew the love that had been extended to her, and she received it as her own. That's it. That's it. And see, what we see from this story is that grace can't be integrated with self-righteousness or self-importance or just a little bit of chest beating and I'm good. No. The scandal of grace is that if you've been working hard to make yourself right with God, look up at me, you've been wasting your time. If you've been working hard to make yourself right with God, you've been wasting your time. Because you can't earn grace. You can only receive it. And there's something unique that happens when people sit across the table from each other is they start to be more and more open to who God is, and to what God's doing. So it's no coincidence the story ends with, your sins are forgiven. And he calls her to go in peace. It's not, hey, let's just sing kumbaya and what you've been doing is okay. No, no, no. Grace confronts. Grace confronts both our failure and grace confronts our pride. It does not leave us in the same place. It always calls us forward because God righteously hates the fact that sin has fractured the shalom that he created us to live in. So he heals and he calls us forward. And notice, all of this happens where? At a table. Not in a synagogue, not in a church building, not through wonderful, eloquent preaching. Although we read the New Testament, that's important. You can read Sermon on the Mount in the book of Acts, but that's not where this transformation takes place. It takes place around a table. Catch this. The, new te- the, the early church and Jesus did not run programs. They didn't do ministries. They didn't have programs. They weren't polished and have everything all together. Here's what they did. Here was their methodology. Let's eat together, and let's talk about life, and let's share our lives with each other, and let's be honest before God and each other, and something sacred might just happen at a really ordinary table, because hospitality at its core is simply creating space for God to move, and God to change us, and God to invite us to something new. It's where Levi heard and responded to the call of discipleship. It's where this woman receives forgiveness and healing, and it's where Jesus reframed what it means to be holy. I love the way that this author, Jim Peterson, put it. He said, I know of no more effective environment for initiating evangelism than dinner at a home or in a quiet restaurant. Maybe it's because eating at its core is a sacred act. There's something spiritual that goes on there. There's something physical that goes on there too. Make no doubt about it. Um, um, eating staves off death. You ever recognize that? I mean, every time you sit down, you say to death, not, not today, no thank you. Um, because you can only live well, roughly 40 days without food, about three days without water, plus or minus on each end. So every time you sit down to eat, well, you're solving a problem. You'd die if you didn't. 
But think about this also. Think about this also. Every time you sit down to eat, there's something on the plate and the table in front of you that at one point was alive. I can't remember. I took um, a group of college students to the mountains in Mexico and the, the sort of the town, the village that welcomed us in honor of our being there slaughtered a goat like right in front of all of our students. And they were like, oh my gosh, a goat was once dead and now once alive and now he's dead and we're going to eat him? And they're shocked by this. And I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Hey, have you ever enjoyed a steak or a hamburger? Like, where do you think that comes from? Bang, bang. You know, like, come on. They were like devastated, right? But we're so disconnected from our food sources today, we have no clue where our food even comes from. But whatever it was that's on your plate, whether it's a grain or a fruit or a vegetable or an animal, praise be to God, at one point, it was alive. And it died so that you won't. So think about this. Every time we sit down to eat a meal, as followers of Jesus, we're retelling a story that we find ourselves in, in order for us to have life. The God of the universe came down and gave his, died, so that we might know what it means to really, truly live. See, the reality, friends, is that grace, the table, is an enactment also not just of friendship and not just of grace, but of promise. I think it's why when the disciples follow Jesus back to Emmaus and he sits down and he takes bread and he breaks it, their eyes are finally opened. Oh my goodness, this is the Messiah. I think it's why we read here, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's this picture of the promise of what God is doing in his incarnation, in the giving of his life so that we might have life. This is such a great phrase. Your faith or your trust has saved you, has saved, or, or you could read that healed you, has restored you. Now go in peace. Peace means the, the bringing to back together of frayed edges. So if you put it all together, here's how it might read. As Jesus says to this woman, the love that you know because of the forgiveness you've received has resulted in a trust of Jesus. And that trust heals your brokenness and repairs the frayed edges of your life, turning them into a beautiful mosaic of God's grace. And all of this, all of this happens at a meal. Because as Tim Chester said in his great book, Meals with Jesus, meals were about something bigger. They represented a new world, a new kingdom, a new outlook but they gave that new reality substance. So it shouldn't surprise us that when the early church, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, starts to develop their rule of life, how they do life together, one of the things that they include from the get-go, oh yeah, 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 we gather in the temple courts, we gather for teaching, we meet together because big groups, big group is important, hearing teaching is important, worshiping together is important, fellowship together is important, but it's not where it ends. They also broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." 
Something sacred happens around a table. The table, the meal, is not just about consumption. It's also about creation. I love the way that Francis Schaeffer put it, the founder of Labrie Institutes. He said, don't start with a big program. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally. Start in your own home. I dare you, he said. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? I dare you, South Fellowship Church. I double dog dare you. In the name of Jesus. Do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. You don't need a big program. You don't have to convince your elder board. All you have to do is open your home and begin. There is no place in God's world where there are no people who will come and share a home as long as it's a real You may not be in the place where you can open your home, but man, right after church, you could ask somebody if they want to go and grab lunch. You could meet somebody at a restaurant, somebody at a coffee shop. It doesn't really matter where it is. When you gather with people, friendships extended, grace is embodied, and a promise is retold. And I pray that we would become the kind of church more and more that lives this out. So maybe this week, some of your practices could be, and I'll ask Aaron to come out. He's going to lead us in one last song. Maybe this week you do that block map that we've included for the last few weeks where it's that like um, tic-tac-toe board with you in the middle and your neighbors and trying to name your neighbors all around the outside of you. I'd encourage you to do that. Or prayer walk your neighborhood, and as you do so, just be open to God inviting you to have conversations with people. Or maybe this week you have somebody over for a meal or you meet somebody for a cup of coffee or you meet them at a, at a restaurant. It's about creating space in your life and in your heart for people. Maybe you serve a meal at Family Promise. Our um, booth is in the back if you'd like to sign up for that. But we're, we're um, hosting Family Promise again where we have people who are experiencing homelessness come and live in our church for a week. And every night we have dinners for them because we believe that something sacred happens around a dinner table and people need to eat. And so we love providing dinner. You can sign up to do that. Um, for extra credit this week, if you want a little film and theology project, um, I would encourage you rent Babette's Feast. 1987 film. It has subtitles, just a warning. If you're not into reading your movies, you're not going to like it. But it is a beautiful story about the power of food and grace and friendship and life. I have a little handout for you. We've had some great stories about people who have um, undertaken to host parties in their workplaces and given out bagels. But here's the thing. Um, I have conversation starters, questions and topics that I'd love to hand out if you're willing to host a meal. Yeah, Brian, good work. Yes, right there, Denise. See, I see that hand. I see that hand. We'd love to hear what happens as you do that. So would you stand with me, church? What if, what if, what if an ordinary table with ordinary food became a sacred tool in the hands of God. Would you live this out? I don't know what's going to happen with my friend Mohammed and I. I do know that we're going to get together again for lunch. And my prayer is that our table would turn into an altar and that eventually he would start to see who Jesus is and the love that Jesus has for him. So Jesus, as we follow in your way with your heart, 
Would you help us to be people who open not just our homes, but our lives, and who see you work mightily through ordinary things, like a meal, like you always have. It's in your name we pray. Amen.